grief is something that you live with for a while. You give it its due, but but you don't let it overtake you. And and that to me that was immediate that I I saw that I could I could let this take me down. <laughs> mm-hmm. I cared about my father. He was that important to me. I adored him. Um, he was an amazing amazing man. I and I I could I saw that I could let it take me down. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't going to happen because he would have been first of all he would be so angry with me but second i'm just not really really made up that way i you know i'm going to be the person who survives to tell the story i'm dave buddha and this is dark on the page podcast where I have conversations with successful authors about the creative process and where great art comes from. Today's guest is Paula Marie Coomer. I'm happy to have Paula back in the show. She was a guest on episode 35 and we had such a memorable conversation that I was really looking forward to having her back. I'm recording this introduction uh, about 10 minutes after we got off the phone. We just we just uh, recorded the interview and I have to say, I'm 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 kind of astonished that we reached, I think, even a deeper level of magic than we did in the first interview. Uh, Paul has some incredible experiences with uh, things that a lot of people would consider mystical or spiritual, and I was just blown away by her stories the first time. And in this episode, we really we dive really deeply into some of the things that have happened. Um, after her dad's passing, her dad died in, in, in December of last year. And so, uh, incredibly fascinating, uh, stories. So, um, there's also a song that she mentions in the uh, interview, which I, I actually use in throughout the episode. So that's the song you'll hear. Uh, it's by a band called the Troubadours of Divine Bliss. And I'll link to those in the show notes as well. Um, we talk about uh, her new book, uh, Jagged Edge of the Sky, and get into a really interesting conversation about um, what makes a really good sex scene, what makes, a, what makes a boring sex scene. And so I think you'll really enjoy that as well. This episode is being brought to you by Penzu, the world's most popular online journaling platform. Penzu allows you to write entries in a secure, password-protected place that you can access from anywhere. You can sign up for free at penzu.com. That's P. E-N-Z-U, P-E-N-Z-U dot com. And if you decide to go pro and upgrade, you can use the code DARKEN for $5 off. And now, here's Paula Marie Cooper. He earns his respect with fairness and heart. His honor and integrity set him apart. So, so welcome back. Um, hey. And... And again, I really, uh, I really enjoyed our first interview, and so, um, you know, it's it's always nice to have uh, to have people that, uh, that you've already had a great time with come back. Um, and you just wrote a new book, Jagged Edge of the Sky, and it's coming out. Well, when we post this, it'll probably be coming out around now, right? I think we're going to post this around the time it gets released. That's the plan. Uh, yes, uh, March yeah. 29th is the release. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, and, um, so I did a little snooping around on your website and just to kind of continue, um, 
so one of the things I, I really wanted to ask you about with this book that kind of relates to the writing process is um, you said that in this book that you write a lot about sex and mm -hmm. describe things in detail. And you said, you know, I'm really, uh, I, I, I'm glad my dad isn't around to read it. Um, and so, um, you know, this is something that a lot of writers that I know I do, I, every time I publish, I know my parents are going to read it and it goes right to their email inbox. And so I wonder, I'm like, well, uh, is, you know, am I really censoring myself? And, and I think there's some things I know I consciously censor, but then some things I wonder, you know, would I be saying this if it weren't, if, if, if my parents wouldn't read it, um, and there's actually some things I do in the media that I know my parents won't see just because they don't listen to everything I do and I do a lot of stuff. So, um, so tell me about that for you and, and, and what was that like? Um, and did you feel uh, like this was, a, this was something that was waiting to be written um, like after your dad had died? Well, my, uh, first of all, my dad just passed away in, uh, December 4th. Yeah, I read that. And yeah, yeah, so, so, uh, so, and the book I, I've been uh, the actual writing of this book took place from 2006 to about 2010 or 2011, oh, okay. um, depending on how I count it. <laughs> yeah. But but um, I I I I really feel like you you know you censoring yourself is a dangerous thing. So when you're writing, you you kind of have to let the the story guide you. You have to let it all hang out, and you have you can't really worry about what any audience, real or imagined, is going to think about about the book. Mm -hmm. um, for for me, my my parents are extremely conservative Christians, and I I grew up in a household with. Uh, no alcohol, uh, no makeup. Uh, for a long period of time, we weren't aware, allowed to wear slacks. We couldn't go swimming, you know, if there were boys there. Just all, all kinds of um, restrictions. And, um, of course, um, you, you know, you didn't go to films where there was skin showing or that had to do with the subject of sex or anything like that. But mm -hmm. You know, in the closet, my mother is, you know, in the back room, my mother's reading romance novels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure where the dividing line was there for her. But at any rate, um, definitely Jagged Edge of the Sky, the, 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 the theme of it is, is, is sex. It's what happens when we choose the wrong partner and, and children get made. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, my feeling was, and it takes place in the outback, you know, and, and in uh, rural western U.S. settings, you know, where people, people are kind of raw, they live raw, um, their, their humanity is, um, is kind of out there in the open. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's a stigma, as much of a stigma around sex and sexuality in some of those settings as there was, you know, for, for my parents mm -hmm. and in, in the life that they had made for themselves. So I, I just, I, I wrote the book the way I wrote it. And when it came around to deciding whether or not I was going to include those very juicy, literally juicy <laughs> scenes, <laughs> Um, I, I just decided I, I couldn't not include them because I felt that what was revealed 
about characters in the midst of all that heat was really important to where the story ended up going. I, I mean, at one point, uh, that you know, there's this mother who's who's central to uh, the decisions that her family makes from that point on because she has this sexual interaction with this man she doesn't know and decides to go off with him. Her entire family has changed, and so I I felt like I had to I we had, as readers had to be inside of those happenings you know what was it about this man and the sexual act that were so enticing to her and it was pretty easy to see that her life living in the outback uh... the wife of a man who's trying to open a thing called a caravan park which caravans to us here in the u.s. are rvs so mm. she's married to this guy who's kind of crazily inventive uh... but her her life as a, a feminine entity um, is sort of like not nurtured um, and she's just really kind of is constantly in a mode for serving her family and so this little moment of breaking out and having sex with this hired hand is what alters everybody's future forever so how could you actually not be inside the event I mean how how could I not take readers into that moment when life is inexorably changed mm -hmm. so so I I just left it there and figured I would deal with my parents later. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, um, I had sort of already overstepped some bounds in earlier books um, where the sex isn't so blatant, but definitely alcohol and drug use, which would be a thing that my parents also would not want to read about coming from me. But mm -hmm. um, I, I just, every book that has come out that my parents might interpret as somehow me being the character, I've had to like prepare them and say, yeah. this is not my life, mom and dad. This is somebody I made up. Um, I know about these things because, well, number one, you know, <laughs> I've had children. <laughs> I know what sex is. Um, and I, I, having been an RN, I've been around, I've known, you know, been around drug culture, had a, a sister who's a drug addict. So mm -hmm. it was easy enough to draw from what experiences I had to create that stuff. But I did have, this was in Dove Creek, my first novel, that I had to really reassure my parents that the things that had happened to that protagonist had not happened to me, that mm -hmm. was purely uh, research-based and, and invented. Yeah. So, so this one, Jagged Edge of the Sky, I'll have to do the same thing. Interestingly enough, my mother, after my father passed away, and my mother's getting ready to turn 80 on Saturday, but mm -hmm. one of the very first things she did is come to me and say, you know, before I met your dad, I used to read Grace Livingston Hill novels. And, mm -hmm. and Grace Livingston Hill is like this Christian romance writer mm -hmm. from way back in the day. I mean, I think she was writing books like in the 40s and 50s. And... Um, and so that was that was my mother's passive aggressive way of saying I would like to read those books again. <laughs> mm. And the reason I know that is cuz I quizzed her about it a few weeks later. I said, "Mom, you know, I was wanting to send you some books. Uh what would you like to have?" And and she mentioned Grace Livingston Hill again. So mm. um I assume that she's like you know, she's missing that uh tantalizing experience that you get from reading books like that and yeah. so yeah. Um, um, I haven't sent her any yet <laughs> instead I ordered her Anita Diamonds the red tent <laughs> yeah 
So if you know about that book, that's the the telling of uh, biblical events from the point of view of the women. You might have seen that there was a mini series here recently based on it. Fabulous heard book. Of it. Yeah, it sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it's really interesting. I've always, I don't know if you've had this experience and maybe the opposite, but um, I've been kind of surprised sometimes. Uh, my parents have surprised me, at least lately, about what they are pretty okay with. Mm. Um, so I tend, so I'll, I, I usually have an, I have an expectation that's kind of, that's here but where they, you know, what, how they're going to react. And they, and they actually, at least in the last three or four years, um, you know, have, have actually uh, surprised me in a nice way. And uh, uh, I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing maybe that your mom is, is um, opening up a little more to this in a way that may be kind of fun and surprising when she eventually reads this, the, your next book, which I think is going to be the case. She'll probably read it, right? Um, yes. Oh, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure she will. Yeah. Uh, she has read and reread all my other books, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm. I'm. I'll be interested to see what she has to say, but I, I think I. What I can never know is if her response is going to be different now that my dad isn't here, um, as opposed to if he were still here. Mm-hmm. But um, I, you know, the other thing that was kind of th- this is really ego driven, but the other thing that was kind of kind of at work here was. Um, I had written some short stories when I was in grad school working on my MFA that had some really concise but vivid sexual moments in it. And I had a a visiting, one of our distinguished visiting professors uh, who said to me, you write sex better than anybody I've ever seen. Mm. And so I think there was a part of me that wanted to put put it out there in the bigger world and see, you know, can, do I really write good sex? Because that, that's the thing, one of the things that we, that we say in creative writing classes, if you can write good sex, you can write anything. And, um, and I, I, and I'm not talking about pornography. Right. I'm not even really talking about erotica, but I'm talking about just the, the human, that human to human engagement if you can create those scenes in such a way that our understanding of intimacy is somehow expanded, then I, to me, that's, that's what makes a successful sex scene. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a part of me that w- just wanted to see, can, can I do this in such a way that somebody else will say, Kuma <laughs> mm-hmm. writes great sex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that could be like the, the opening quote on the top, you know, like Paula Kuma writes great sex, New York Times, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm almost almost sixty, so I, I can I can I can basically do whatever I want to do. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that. This is really interesting. What what makes a great sex scene, like as a writer, and what is it about that? Um, you mentioned a little bit. It's like kind of a holistic intimacy approach, maybe. What, what what do you what do you feel like? Maybe let's talk about some bad sex scenes, or what do you think the you know some writers that you've read um, that really do it right? What do they do? What, what what's interesting about it? Well, um, let's talk about the bad ones first. I think bad sex is pornographic, mm-hmm. just flat for the sake of be, you know being raunchy and uh, it's just body parts and you know being thrust against the wall and uh, uh, you know groped and <laughs> yeah, sensual. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, there's too in bad sex scenes. I think there's too much detail. I think really good sex scenes will will 
take you inside the actual experience so that you're not a voyeur. You're more, I, I don't want to say a, a participant, but, but a witness. Mm. Um, and, and there, there's though there will be something maybe you recognize as even missing from your own experience. Um, mm. Maybe the, the, the sense of a thrill, thrill or a sort of touch or a sensation that you yourself hasn't, haven't experienced. Even now, when I go back and read the sex scenes in Jagged Edge of the Sky, I find, I find myself feeling, you know, a little discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I think a, a good sex scene will kind of make you squirm in your seat. Yeah. But it's it's all about, it's about it's about the sensory mm-hmm. so it, it so it's not just touch but it smells and sounds mm-hmm. and i i think often um good you know the the good the good sex scenes are are really going to give ample time to those two sensory components mm-hmm. the the smells and the sounds yeah and the one the one scene um it, they're you know they're having uh, the the sex scene is taking place on a train, uh, you know, in the Australian uh, Western Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, and the you know the train is throbbing through the night. <laughs> yeah, I don't do I have to say anything more? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like the, the involving very, the surroundings too. Yeah. 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 So so pulling the surroundings in into it as well. Yeah. Um, I really love what you said about that. You know, when people read that, they it's like a flashlight uh, that points out things in their own experience that they may have missed, you mm-hmm. know, because there, I mean, clearly there are, s- there's so much to notice in sex. It's, it's how, like there's, and, and so by saying, you know, I, I noticed, I mean, something simple, like I noticed um, the way her skin sounded as it brushed along my skin, you know, some, some, mm-hmm. like I, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain things that we never stop to go, Oh, I, I've never stopped to think about the sounds of skin touching or maybe, you know, and, or the smell, uh, you know, of, of, of a pillow after or something that, that, and I love that because it really can, you know, you go back to your life with a, with a much richer appreciation of, um, the scene that, that you might be in. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think in America we're, we're sort of like trained to the build up to the, you know, to the, the chase and capture, mm-hmm. and and I don't think we're really. I, I don't think we're taught to think about like the the details of the experience as they're happening. But but that's really, and and I think a lot of us, you know, we we have sex with no intimacy. Yeah. And and that's 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 why because we're we're not like deeply enough engaged in the nuances of the moment, to to really be able to call it intimacy Mm -hmm. it's just it's just an act we're trained to an act Mm -hmm. um i i don't i don't know how much language you can use but i'll just go ahead and say please go go for it i almost heard that once heard the term um sport fucking Mm -hmm. and and that just that phrase has always stuck in my head because i think that that's kind of what we're trained to in this Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. Rather than than having it be some kind of um, um, some, something that's sort of like transformative in in little increments, I I feel like a a good 
sexual relationship with somebody you care about is ultimately over time going to be transformative as you are, allow yourself to go deeper and deeper into it, intimacy, not mm-hmm. just physically, but, you know, the whole kind of um, human to human, soul to soul sort of thing that happens in, in long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, I, I totally agree. I also want to make a comment that, that I... I talk about this stuff a lot, and so I love this conversation. Um, not just a uh, like a random aside about about writing. This is really I do love talking about this. And I guess w- what I you know what I was thinking about when you, when you were when you were talking about the lack of intimacy is, and I I sort of see it as like we've created this, not we've created, but we're on this continuum, and on on one side is is like the most rich intimacy that we could we could really imagine. And then the other side is this kind of like let like total avoidant, almost mm-hmm. abstinence to a to a fault, and and so somewhere in the middle there we're left with, uh, we're left with a version of sex that is, you know we're not avoiding it, but we're using all these different ways to not to avoid any kind of depth with people, because mm-hmm. it's still kind of like avoiding it altogether. But we're we're just allowing ourselves to go. It's now it's just pure fantasy, so it's just <laughs> erotic. That's it. And mm-hmm. then and as you get, walk closer and closer to that, you know that ideal of of being uh, like f- it, the intimacy being you know as rich and as as um, powerful as it could be, um, you move through those stages of sport fucking or you know just it, it being. Um, you know, all fantasy, not no connection to the the sense. There's no connection to the moment. What's going on? What surroundings? That other person as another being, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think I, I really hear what you're saying. Well, it's interesting as you're talking, and and I'm thinking about the book. I'm realizing, oh my gosh, that none of the, none of the sex scenes are with are are between people who are in long-term relationships. <laughs> Mm. So it's all about uh, happenstance, mm. um, and and isn't that interesting that that never occurred to me before? I suppose to achieve real balance in the book, I should have. I I guess there is one scene between. Uh, let let me just back up a little bit. There's two two mm-hmm. wives. So there's an American wife, mm-hmm. uh, Jean McMurtry, and there's a, an Australian wife, Charisse Tuor, mm-hmm. and. Both both the women are with the same man, this hired hand who has come across Australia with the McMurtry family as their sort of guide across the outback. And um, after Jean is with the hired hand, whose name is Rich Hand, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, she then goes to her husband to say what has happened, and the husband immediately like comes on at her like he's going to rape her mm-hmm. um which he doesn't but at at the same time he he thinks to himself about his sexual attraction to his own wife and we we are inside his head for a few minutes as he examines the nature of that and how it is that he is so turned on that his wife has done this thing mm. And he's expecting that she's done things with she did things with this man that he can't bring himself to ask her for, mm-hmm. which you know it's you know it's not it is I mean it's like 1950s um, we we were 
we were a little bit different, I guess, about our our sexual freedom in those days. So some of it's wrapped up in that. But he does sort of come to this re- this realization about himself that his his problems really are about his ability to express what he would what he would like to do um, in the bedroom with his wife. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing he doesn't want to admit to her that he feels turned on by the prospect of her being with somebody else too. Right. Right. He's not going to he's not going to share that. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't reveal it. But it it is an interesting moment uh, because he's kind of this uh, he's you know, he's a rich, you know, rich kid, uh, big, long time, old money, Mm -hmm. American money. And um, I think he he just sort of came from people who subdued that part of himself. They focused all their energy on work and making money. and, And they they and so he. He didn't. He didn't have any sort of structure or, or training in that regard. His original plan for himself had been to be an international playboy. So, mm-hmm. his, you know, his original plan was not to be intimate with, really with anybody. Mm-hmm. And then he meets this woman who um, sort of changes all that for him. But then he's not able to experience that that rep- repressed playboy part of himself with her. Mm-hmm. And he he comes to that understanding. We never know how that that's resolved in the book. You know, it's a story that never gets finished. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it but it is a moment in his life mm-hmm. where he understands something about the nature of intimacy and and how that he doesn't have access to that and it's of his own doing, mm-hmm. his own limitations. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful that he realizes that. I mean, I think for many years, in my twenties especially. Um, I didn't really know what I was missing in a lot of ways. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a gift to at least see what you're missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really true. <laughs> Awareness is everything. I never wrote, read romance novels either, so maybe that you know, could, have, could have satisfied that. Um, not necessarily the place to go either. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Penzu. P-E-N-Z-U dot com. And Penzu is your personal journal in the cloud. And Penzu is where millions of people keep their most private thoughts and you can lock it with a secret password, which is something that I think you can't do with uh, necessarily um, with paper. And so it's a really it's a really valuable thing. I wanted to say a few things about uh, the importance of journaling and what it's done for me as a writer. Um, you know, to me, journaling is like the is the easiest form of writing because it's the writing where you don't have the critic you don't have oh I hope this is good somebody else is going to read it you don't worry about what you're going to say you don't worry about offending your parents you don't worry about anything you just write whatever you want you just talk you just talk to yourself and you write and for me what I use journaling for that I just think is is a miracle when it comes to writing especially writer's block is if I don't know what to write or if I'm feeling stuck, um, I'll just go to the journal and I'll start writing whatever's going on. So usually I might write something like, I'm feeling stuck. I'm trying to write an article, but I wanted to make it sound too scholarly and I can't seem to let go and boy, am I frustrated and blah, 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 blah. And I'll just write that. And just getting my fingers going and getting words on a page, you know, it's it's such an important thing for me. And so, so I really, if, if, you, if you don't have a regular journaling habit, and I don't even mean a regular journaling, journaling habit as in you have to do it every day, 
But if it's not something you turn to regularly, I definitely think you should check it out. And if you want to check out Penzu, you can go to penzu.com. You can uh, see what they do. They have a, it's free, and they also have a, a pro subscription if you want. Um, and you can use uh, the promo code DARKEN for $5 off if you decide to use their pro subscription, which will give you great benefits like um, being able to uh, like lock encrypt it, that kind of stuff. If you're really, <laughs> if you're the kind of person that's really like, you know, really, really wants to make sure nobody reads it. Um, and I highly recommend it. I, I checked it out and I've been on it and using it and it's really cool service. So penzu.com if you want to check that out. And now back to the show. Um, how has your writing been since in the last couple months since your dad's death? I mean, has it been turning to writing much or has it been, uh, yeah, how's that been? Well, it's, it's been, it's been very interesting. People are telling me that some of the most powerful stuff they've ever read, but from me, but, uh, it's been in the form, it's been in public form. It's been in, uh, um, Blog posts, posts or, yeah. Facebook, yeah, Facebook and, and, uh, and some in the blog, um, in my, my subscriber, my mailing list, you know, they get kind of a special, um, article from me from time to time. And, um, so that was the, I, de- I dealt with it by, by writing publicly about it. And it, it just so happened that a number of people I knew were, were suffering major losses at the same time. And uh, I think those were the people who were most touched by what I had to say. But there were just, you know, there was amazing, very amazing stuff that happened around my dad's death. I mean, he appeared in my kitchen <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> hours after he died. You know, he appeared to my brother and my sister. And, um, and then talk just... talk about that. That's... That's really interesting. That, and that was that uh, before you knew he had died, or is this? No, I knew I knew he was gone. Uh, it was the day it was the day after I found out, and we we were preparing to leave, so we were going to have to drive from Washington to Indiana mm-hmm. uh, because my mother. We had to close out the house. My mother had to be moved um, to my brother's house in North Carolina, and so we felt we had no recourse really, or that it made the most sense for us to drive. So drove our pickup truck. So we'd have something to help with moving in that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we, we got the call on Saturday morning. We left on Sunday morning. So Saturday evening. So within 24 hours after his death, I walk out of the bathroom and, this was not a hallucination. There was the form of my dad um, in pure light and the whole room filled with light. And um, I just started talking to him. It was like I could hear, I could feel the questions in my brain. They were, it was not, it wasn't oral, uh, A-U-R-A-L, but it, but it was, um, question, questions were in my brain and he, he just wanted to know what happened. And I told him, I said, you know, you, your mind was starting to go and you went out after dark for some reason. You know, he had progressive, uh, he had diabetic dementia and he was getting progressively worse and was in complete denial about it. And he shouldn't have been driving, but he really shouldn't have been driving after dark. And so I just stood there for about seven or eight minutes and explained to him what had happened uh, over the past few years. He seemed very much not aware of the period of dementia. Like it seemed to me that he was 
maybe about 50 years old again mm-hmm. before the, the, his health problems had started. And then um, I heard from my brother later that, um, that he had had a similar experience that dad had appeared in my brother's workshop. And then for my sister, it was about a week later, and we were it's when we were all at mom and dad's, and we were, um, you know, cleaning up the house and all that. She was driving, and her car filled with this bright white light, and she had to pull over to the side of the road. And she said it was dad. I knew it was him, so I just started talking to him and, wow. and told him that he was gone. So we all, we had these just incredibly, and I mean, there are more stories that, uh, you know, I could I could go on and on, <laughs> like the repairing image of Superman for one thing, um, and you know, my dad of course was Superman to all of us, um, but uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was pretty pretty dramatic. And what can you do with something at that level, but share it and put it out into the world? And so that's what I did: a series of long Facebook posts and. Um, um, I was just really frank uh, about what had occurred. He, I, I should just explain. He, you know, he um, he went off the went off the road in a, a bad fog, worst fog anybody could remember, a road that he'd been on a thousand times, and um, he managed to get himself out of his truck, and um, and and that was it. They found him the next morning. So so he he froze to death. Um, and that's hard to take. <laughs> mm. That is really, really hard to take uh, for your father, you know, to be like on the phone with you one day, and then, you know, two days later they find him in a cow pasture. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't hold it in, and so that's just the way I shared it. And uh, um, people, yeah, people have said it's some of the most powerful writing they've seen from me. But was it harder? Do you think because he didn't die immediately in the car crash that he was somehow, you know, there was like a day or so, or that that there was this like hope maybe was that harder? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and we held out the hope for ten weeks that he had a, had a heart attack or a stroke. Um, but it was clear that he had tried to save himself. You know, handprints all over the truck. He uh, clearly he had tried to crawl to safety. Uh, the truck had landed like right next to a barn. Um, clear, you could see it, the detectives and all that were able to see where he had dragged his body wow. through the mud and the muck. And uh, so we were hoping heart attack, stroke, uh, he, that he was out of it enough to not know what was happening. But um, after we got the final reports back they they said no that he had had um oxygen starvation uh looked like maybe for a long time um which meant you know like something going on with his lungs and that he had died of exposure so he wasn't a drinker he never touched alcohol you know so there was none of that yeah it was just that he went off the road and and it was so foggy that they said it was so foggy that night that you you wouldn't even be able to see to drive at all and the fact that he was on the road was just beyond anybody's understanding. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I just think I, I, this new novel that's starting to form, I'm just, it, it's in a rural situation. There's uh, a dairy farmer. And so I'm just guessing that I will put, I'll put that scene into that book. And that'll be my ultimate way of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. It's writing. Yeah. 
did it surprise you at all that you it was uh, maybe it seemed maybe an easy, easy decision or that going and sharing this stuff publicly and writing publicly was that as a result of, of his death was that surprising to you that you did that well kind of <laughs> kind of I mean you know one of the weird things about social media or social um, um, Facebook Twitter and those kind of things is and, and especially with authors is that they expect us to and they meaning our publishers mm-hmm. uh, and the publishers marketing people they sort of expect us to develop relationships with our our readers and followers by revealing little tidbits about our private lives mm-hmm. and for me I, I sort of had this discussion with my marketing person and I, and I don't think she liked it very much but I said I, I told her I said you know I have I've sort of developed a persona in those arenas that are, are I mean it's kind of a fictionalized version of myself so I don't reveal a lot. I mean, there's a, a little bit, you know, um, uh, Phil and I are amateur birders. So if we spot a bird we haven't seen, you know, I'll, I'll post that. Um, we've been remodeling this two-story Victorian for how many years now? <laughs> Six years now. <laughs> and so um, when, we, when we reach a milestone, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say something like that, you know, like, oh, the sound of the floor sander is heaven to my ears or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've picked certain little topics, um, our gardening and, um, and, and food uh, around food um, uh, and, and herbal medicine. Those are the things I usually focus on. So people mm-hmm. are getting a, a little glimpse of me, but only in certain areas. So, so yes, it surprises me that I would be that go, go there in, in, in that big of a public arena. And, you know, I, I probably, I mean, I've got a few thousand followers mm-hmm. uh, across all those different outlets. But, um, so that, so I surprised myself with that. But I, I was surprised by the reaction of members of my family mm. um, who, uh, who were a little bit dismayed oh, that, really? that, that I would uh, put that out publicly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for me, it was total therapy. Yeah. It it was totally necessary, and but but it wasn't just about me. It was just it was also because I understood that if I'm feeling this, there are so many other people out there who have to have felt something similar when their close person has died. I mean, Dad was mm-hmm. my favorite person on the planet mm-hmm. that's out of everybody you know that's out of my own children that's my spouse you know that I mean he was my favorite person and when you lose the person who is most important to you in life you've lost a tether and and so I I just felt like if if I'm experiencing this then a bunch of other people are and I, I just felt obligated to mm-hmm. share that grief process mm-hmm. um, and, and to help people understand that, that grief, is, um, grief is something that you live with for a while. You give it its due, but, but you don't let it overtake you. And, and that, to me, that was immediate that I, I saw that I could, I could let this take me down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cared about my father. He was that important to me. I adored him. Um, he was an amazing, amazing man. 
I, and I, I could, I saw that I could let it take me down mm-hmm. and it wasn't going to happen because uh, he would have been, first of all, he would be so angry with me, but second, I'm just not really, really made up that way. I, you know, I'm going to be the person who survives to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. I, it just, it just, I, I think what really pushed it was this thing um, with with him like trying to reach out to us is the way we all interpret it through this sort of like Superman thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, should I go ahead and tell that story? We're kind of... Yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, I love that. Long, long on time here. But, well, what happened was that on the night of the funeral, um, my... My oldest son, who happened to be in Chicago and was able to drive down and be there for the funeral, even though he lives in Boise, mm-hmm. um, he he and I and my husband had gone to a little um, pub. And that was the other thing. Uh, you know, my parents were so adamant against alcohol, I had never drank any kind of alcohol in southern Indiana. <laughs> never even had a glass of wine. Um, you know, communion was grape juice when I... <laughs> When I went to church when I was a kid, so mm-hmm. so I never had any kind of alcohol in in my the state I grew up in. I, it's made me sounds like nothing to some people, but to me it was a thing. You know, my I didn't want to um, hurt my parents by having them know that I you know went to uh, an establishment, um, a beverage establishment uh, near where they live. Mm-hmm. So, Anyway, it was just a thing for me. So uh, so we went to this little pub. I'll tell you, it's called Point Blank Brewery. It's in downtown Cordon, Indiana. If anybody ever gets to Indiana, <laughs> to Cordon, Indiana, it's like a totally hip spot. Mm-hmm. And um, had a glass of wine. And uh, there was a band called Troubadours of Divine Bliss. They're, they've, they're known all over the place. Uh, two young women, originally from Louisville. I think they've lived a long time in... Um, um, New Orleans and oh, cool. perform, and there they've and they've been they've performed all over the world. Fabulous, fabulous musicians, mm-hmm. and do kind of a um, kind of funky Americana, uh, New Agey. <laughs> I love it already. It sounds spirituality. Great. <laughs> it's like it's awesome stuff. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so the bartender says to me do you want another glass of wine? And I said, well, could I have a half a pour? Cause I'm not used to drinking this much. They do something called a Southern pour around there, which is like more wine than out here. You know, it's five ounces of wine out there. Mm-hmm. It's something like seven. Yeah. And, uh, and, and my son said, come on, mom, you're, you just went to your dad's funeral. You can have another glass of wine. And the bartender looked at me and she just poured the wine. She didn't even, mm-hmm. she didn't even wait for me to say yes. That's and, the other parts of the Southern poor, just pouring without asking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, uh, you know, listening to these great musicians, they, they right after the, the, the poor, the second poor, they go on break. They walk back. The woman, one of the gals, reaches out to my hand and says, why do you look so familiar? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't live here. We're just here for my dad. We, we just put my dad in the ground today, so that's why I'm here. And she's like, Oh, my goodness. And I kind of told her the story. You know, he froze to death in a cow pasture. Mm-hmm. She goes and gets, she goes to the other gal, brings her over to me and and says, you know, two months ago, her father was walking across the crosswalk in Louisville, hit and run driver, hit him, killed him. And, you know, he was similar age to my dad. He had dementia, kind of the whole thing. So there was all that similarity. Mm-hmm. 
So they, uh, they ask me what my dad's name is. I tell them. They go back after the break, and they stand up there and said, this one's for Albert. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they start singing the song called uh, about dads, about what it takes to be, to be a dad, and it's called Superman. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just start bawling, you know, like I have never bawled in my life yeah. right there in front of everybody. In fact, pretty much everybody who was in that tavern that night has now been in touch with me via Facebook <laughs> <laughs> because of, of uh, my pronouncement about these young women and what happened there that night. So um, anyway, so she she's so there's that. And then they immediately break into Ring of Fire, which was my dad Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, which my da- was my dad's favorite song, mm-hmm. I, and I never told them that. And um, so you know, again, there I am, just blubbering and, and bawling. And so then, after at that point, the Superman, Superman, just starts showing up everywhere. We see image, we see it, you know, the emblem on the back of cars. We see people with shirts. You, you know how this works. Yeah. Don't watch Seinfeld. You would, uh, yeah. <laughs> do you know in Seinfeld that actually Jerry puts an image of Superman every single episode? That's kind of like a little thing. But, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So if you watch Seinfeld, you might see it a lot. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Well, so then a couple. So this goes on for several days, and then we get Dad's truck back. And what is there? But in the in the front seat, but he has made this haul. From a yard sale, that's apparently one what one of the things he had done the day he died, mm-hmm. and laid across the top of it is this jacket with a big Superman <laughs> mm-hmm. emblem on the jacket. Wow! And so we were just like, you know, okay, so for whatever reason, this is this is the the sign of of you know whatever Dad reaching to us. And so as that was happening. Um, I I every time there was a Superman hit, I was sort of reporting that on Facebook, and you know everybody, a lot of people kind of got caught up in it. I had a few dozen people who were sort of following the thing. So, yeah. so that I and and also just the fact that he had died in the cow field, and um, when they discovered his body, the cattle. Uh, one of the ways they were pretty sure that he had frozen to death was that, I guess, if a human is just injured. Uh, a cow will lie down beside them to keep them warm until help comes. And there was no evidence that ca- the cows had gotten close to dad at all. But when they found him, there was they were in a semicircle around him as if they were protecting the body from the elements. Mm. And so that was the other thing that got posted. And, and just people's response to it was, you know, thank you so much. Th- thank you for telling it. You know, people... It, it moved people. Folks were touched by it, and I, and so I guess the Superman event is kind of what started it because that was just that weird intersection that was just blowing us all away that we would keep getting hit with the Superman image, mm-hmm. um, and then um, and and I guess that feeling that I had an interested audience in what was going on then became the thing that kept me posting. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. That's a long, long answer to all of that, but it's it 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 was the whole thing was such a phenomenon mm-hmm. there for that that first week or so after he died and yeah. Um, well, you know, this is it, it. Really, to me, you know, you you have such a way of sharing these magical experiences in life. Um, it, it almost like probably doesn't. It almost maybe even surprises you because it seems so normal for you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is the case, but I remember a year ago when we talked, you know, and it's, um, but you know, I, I think it's fascinating. Obviously a lot of people think it's fascinating and, and it's, and it's such a, a service to connect people to that mystery, um, of life and, um, and the things that we can't explain or the, you know, and, but you do it in such a way that, you know, you're not, um, I think some people, I think we, sometimes we see that stuff, often we see that stuff and it comes with an agenda either to be part of a certain religion or to, to believe something for a purpose of whatever. And, and you're just telling it from such a really grounded human experience and, and as a writer, so someone who can describe things in really wonderful detail. And uh, so I, it's not surprising at all why that to me is so, so, uh, riveting for people and memorable because it you know it's it's amazing and and you really uh it, that's uh that's a beautiful gift I, I i uh i haven't had really those type of visceral experiences for myself I, my wife has a lot um and and there's a part of me that's kind of envious you know of like wow like light beings showing up <laughs> and there's like <laughs> people talking to me and stuff that i can't explain and so i in a way get to live it kind of vicariously through you well, I, I think I think we come to a point in our lives where where we we get broken open a little bit, and and that part of ourselves is a little more accessible. And I I, I think that happened to me. Um, I, I think sometimes trauma will do it. And I you know I had a number of tra- traumatic events early in my life, and and I've wondered if that isn't part of of what has made me as open as I am. Also. Um, I think coming from the mountain heritage that we come that we come from, you know, from the Appalachian region, being mixed blood, you know, Native American, um, African, um, it's the Scottish. Um, I, I, some I, I think some people. I don't want to say this wrong, but 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 I I think living in those isolated situations like that, you end up being a little more open to things just because you're living it, it's back around to living really raw mm-hmm. um, and living really close to the earth um, and being attuned you just become attuned to nuances because that's what that kind of living trains you to mm-hmm. if that makes any kind of sense and, and so for, for mm-hmm. me at least I think it had as much to do with the heritage that I came out of my mother is like I mean, she, the stuff that she, she is aware of and um, the things that that she sees sometimes that are inexplicable. Um, I mean, she really has a gift. But she she's somebody who spends a ton of time in prayer and meditation in her life and has for decades. Mm-hmm. So she's just really cultivated that that spiritual port- portal. Mm-hmm. Um and and is very very open. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that you can achieve through meditation too. I, I mean, I I think that's one of the the byproducts of it is is increased openness. And and when you're open, then those things do present themselves. When they do present themselves, you can recognize it. And then I think you start to look for it. Mm-hmm. And and then um, it's kind of a progression. Mm-hmm. You've probably read Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, I have. His work and 
I don't know. I, I just sometimes I think capitalism has just taken the removed the openness <laughs> mm-hmm. from us. You know, this life that we all lead, um, we're we're separate from our own spirits, and um, I, I think that has to be a goal for all of us is to reconnect with our own spirits and and things like meditation, yoga, getting away to retreat, all that stuff goes a long way towards doing that. Yeah, well, and and you've done a long way. You've done a lot towards doing that for the people. So, yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Um, well, I want to ask you the the last question that I ask people, and um, and I think it, you know, maybe is kind of more applicable to like let's say the last nine months or so since we talked. And the question is, if you could write a note to yourself and send it back through time, um, to yourself at a prior date, um, what would you say? And and I wonder what, what you would say now to yourself maybe before December. Um, and it may, you know, maybe about running, it may not be, be, maybe just about living, but what would you say to yourself last year? Uh, well, one thing might be... Um, don't don't bring out another book in 2016. <laughs> 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 I love you know I love it that I have a publisher that believes in me and wants to ma- bring my books out. But um, you know I got to say trying to do a book a year is a lot, a lot mm-hmm. when you still have a job and all that. Um, but but I also might say get get ready for the ride. Um, my dad, my dad's passing has freed me in a, in a big, in a big way. So, um, and the reason, the reason for that is that I was having to travel back and forth a lot, you know, just trying to keep my, my parents living on their own involved us children having to, to go to where they lived and helping them with stuff. And they were they were kind of refusing to budge, and we were sort of at the place where we were going to have to actually take control of them because they were kind of getting to where they we felt they weren't taking care of themselves as well as they should have been. Mm-hmm. And so I now I don't have to do that. Now I don't have to travel that to Indiana anymore. So I'm suddenly freed up to do some other things that may ultimately be a benefit to myself as a writer, to my writing career. I, I'm just going to be able to promote this book in a way that I wasn't able to before. So mm-hmm. I'm anticipating a, a ride with this one. So I guess that would be the other thing I would say. Get ready for the ride and wait till 2017 to bring the book out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for uh, our conversation. It was... Um, you know, it's it's hard to hope for magic to happen again. And in an interesting way, I feel like the two times we've talked, we've struck the same magical chord in, in kind of a similar way twice mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, I think you're sharing these experiences is just amazing. And so thanks for, for really uh, for everything you shared and, and um, I re- best of luck on the ride. Thanks, Dave, and thanks. I, you know, I don't know what it is. Uh, you, you just sort of, there's, you, you sort of like give me that space to open up and uh, take a little risk 
about uh, as far as talking about these things. So I have to thank you too because it, it, the, the last time completely shocked and surprised me. I think <laughs> said that when I you know, when I shared the interview said I don't know how he got me to say the things. <laughs> but you're a great interviewer. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. Nice to have the safe space to share. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, well, clearly you would enjoy the other interview I did with Paula. Uh, it's an episode 35 if you haven't already listened to it. Duckinthepage.com slash 035, or you can find it on iTunes. And, and also, you know, we mentioned in it the writing retreats, and this is something that I haven't uh, given any updates on, but I'm, I'm still thinking about doing a writing retreat probably summer or fall up in Big Bear in the place that I described uh, in this interview. And so uh, if you're interested in that, make sure you're, you're uh, getting a hold of me somehow. Or you can go to the email list. Go to darkenthepage.com. At the top, you'll see a little bar that says Get Updates and Writing Retreats. And you can put in your email. And that's a great way to do it. And that way I can stay in touch with you. Let you know what's happening. If you really enjoy this podcast, um, one, of the, one of the biggest things you can do to, to support it is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And what that does is it's kind of, it's like iTunes search engines. It's kind of like Google. And uh, the more reviews you have, the higher rank you get. So if somebody searches in writing, let's say, the podcasts with the most rating and reviews will get the highest search ranking. So um, that really helps the show. And uh, you can also reach out to me and say hi on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Dark on the Page or Dark on the Page at gmail.com, which is my email. And again, thanks for listening and go make great art. The best that they can. Men who earn the name dead. Yes, fathers that do the very best that they can.